0: We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. We're beginning a brand new series together titled Living and Loving the Truth. I'm excited about what God is going to do in us and through us over these next few Sundays during the month of March as we look at these two little and unfortunately often ignored Bible books. As we walk through them together, as you open it up, you may have already guessed just by looking at the title. There are obviously three letters written by a man by the name of John. And yes, this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. This is the same John that wrote all three letters, and it's the same John that wrote Revelation. This is the same John who was one of Jesus's beloved disciples. This was his brother was James. He was known as the son of thunder. He was the one that was known as the disciple who Jesus Jesus loved. He was the very disciple who stood at the foot of the cross that Jesus said that he would take care of Mary and Mary would be his son and he would be and she would be his mother. It is the disciple that was the last remaining disciple to remain alive. He was the one that was exiled to Patmos. This is a disciple who knew Jesus well and knew him intimately and his passion and his love for the church and for Jesus Christ took him all the way to the end of his life. In fact, when we Pick up this epistle. We're not far from the end of John's life. We know that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were all written very close together. They were written from Ephesus and they were written somewhere between 90 and 95 AD, which placed John as an old, old man. You will see the word elder will be the first word that we read together in just a few moments. But you're going to see some themes that come out over the next few weeks, not just today, but over the next several weeks in both 2nd and 3rd John you're going to see the themes of truth, you're going to see the theme of love, and you're going to see the need for discernment or for boldly being willing to defend the truth of the gospel. And so as these letters are often ignored, I want us to bring them to the forefront because I believe they may be as if not more applicable in 2023 than they were in 95 AD. In fact, they're letters with content that you and I as the church in the world cannot afford to overlook. So today we're going to be talking about specifically what it looks like to walk in truth and love. When we talk about our Christian walk, it's something that we hear all the time and there's a reason for that. It is a common metaphor all throughout the New Testament to describe our life in Christ, our walk with Jesus or our walk with God. Often we'll hear it phrased, how is your walk? Now, you and I both know, just from a physical standpoint, you can tell a lot about a human being by the way that they walk, right? And I'm talking about just observing the way that someone comes into a room. For instance, if you were sitting at a small gathering of people and someone walked in the room and this was their posture, you would have a pretty good idea of some things without them ever speaking a word. What would you know immediately? They're nervous, they're scared, they're not confident. All those things you would pick up just by the way they walked into the room. Same room, same place. Next person enters, and they walk in like this. Strutting, right? And you walk in and you're going, oh, here we go, right? (laughs) They haven't spoken a word, but you can tell by the way that they walk something about them. What we're going to see over the next several weeks is by the way that we walk, that the world can tell a whole lot about who we are and what we believe together. So what we're going to do in just a few moments is we're going to read the first six verses of Second John together. Next week, we're going, to lo- we're going to look at the last remaining verses. And then for the last two weeks in March, we're going to look at Third John together. But for this morning, let's stand and begin by reading Second John Beginning in verse 1, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth and not I only but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. I pray that you would teach us today to never, ever sacrifice truth for love or love for truth. Lord, teach us to walk. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to be seated for just a moment. Now today, if you're looking on the screen, it's going to be just a little bit different than normal because I want to walk you through three truths, but instead of giving you one, and then us talking for a little while and giving you the second and the third one, I want to put all three points up at one time because as you read this passage together, you're going to see that they all are so interrelated that every aspect of what we're talking about today has to do with the way that we walk. So here are our three points together, and we're going to unpack these over our next few moments together. Number one, you should walk in truth. You should walk in truth. Number two, you should walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. And then number three, we should walk in love. Now you've got your Bibles out and they're open. So I want you to do an exercise. And this is a great Bible study tool all the time, but you can do it right here. We can do it together. I want you to look at the passage that we just read together. And by the way, Sometimes I know many of you read along with me as we walk through series. You read either in preparation or you read before or you read after. But if there was ever... Not an excuse for you not to read the passages that we're walking through. It's over the next four weeks. Some of you have already cheated and read all of 2nd and 3rd John. And you can actually do that today. I'm going to look at you and you're going to look down like you're taking notes and you could read both of them, right? They're that short. In fact, I want to challenge you over the next four weeks not to just read through 2nd and 3rd John, but to read through 2nd and 3rd John several times. And as you read through it, some things are going to jump off the page like maybe they already have this morning as we read together. First off, just in the verses we just read together, I want you to look down and with a highlighter or pen, circle or underline how many times you see the word walk. How many times do you see that word? It's an obvious theme. Even if I had no background, no commentary, no study Bible, I would know that I see that coming up over and over again. In fact, you see it three different times just in these verses. What about the word truth? take just a moment i want to give you time to do your homework what about the word truth how many times do you pick up the word truth just in these six verses five different times just in these verses what about the word command or commands when we talk about obedience we're talking about being obedient to what to the commands of God, or the command of God. If you underline that word, you see it come up four different times. And then the word love. If you underline and look for the word love, we've looked for the word walk, we've looked for the word truth, we've looked for the word command, now we're looking for the word love. And it comes up four different times. So what we know is these are driving, motivating factors that help us to see in this particular passage what it is that John is getting at. So we're going to walk through these verses and some things I think are going to become more clear as we walk through them together. First off, it is not abnormal for someone to identify themselves in a first century letter. So often the first thing that you will see instead of saying, dear so-and-so, is you will identify himself. And John identifies himself. He was so readily known by the churches is by him saying the elder, he is saying at this point, there's not another apostle left they've all been killed. I am the elder. I am the one, not only by age, but also by office. I am the elder. I am the apostle, the one that was closest to Jesus. I am the elder. So he identifies himself, and then we get to our first little bit of a problem or a little bit of a question when it says, to the chosen lady and her children. Now, there's a little bit of debate about who he's talking about. So is John writing to an individual family? Is this letter just going to an individual, a specific woman and her kids? Or is he writing it to a church and the lady that he's talking about, the lady is the church and the children are the members of the church? Well, different commentators take different takes. I think it's fairly obvious from the passage that he is writing to a church. John wrote two churches and two congregations. And when he writes to the congregation, the lady that he's talking about is the church. The members later on, he talks about her dear sister. He's talking about a sister congregation. And you probably are asking a good question. And I've taught you, I I think, to ask critical questions when you read. Why wouldn't he just say to the church and its members? You've got to remember that, that in 90, 95 AD, we're still dealing with a great deal of persecution in the church. So often when things were written, instead of just like when Peter would write, instead of writing Rome, he would write Babylon, right? So that it would almost be a code so that as you wrote the letter, if somebody got this letter, the, it would not jump off the page as they were reading it so that they would know who it was to and who it was from because of the persecution that was taking place in the church. So he says, to the chosen lady and her children, he says, I want you to know that you are loved in truth, but not just by me, but by everyone who loves the truth. So we've got to take just a a moment and stop there because we don't get out of verse one before this theme of truth is going over and over and over again, right? So it demands that we ask a question. And by the way, this is an old question. This isn't a new question. In fact, the first person that we know of probably was asked before them, but we know over 2,000 years ago, there was a man who asked this very question and he actually asked it to jesus face in john 18 38 you'll remember that jesus has been arrested right he's been brought before the jewish sanhedrin he's been before caiaphas and he is sent to the roman governor or prefect and who does he sent to a man by the name of pontius pilate and as the case is being presented before pilate pilate asked this question it's three words and i believe it's three words that define even our age today pilate asked this question, what is truth? Do you remember that question? What is truth? And the reason that we still need to be answering and asking that question is that we live in a world of cultural relativity, right? We live in a world where people would tell you there is no such thing as absolute truth, that we can't believe that the Bible is absolutely true or that the gospel is the only way. And we find ourselves in academic institutions where people are denying absolute truth left and right, which to me is interesting even from a language standpoint. Because if someone tells you there is no such thing as absolute truth, you can refute that with one question. All you have to do is look at them and ask them this question. Do you believe that absolutely? Obviously, to believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth, you have just stated an absolute, and you have cut your own argument out from under itself. But we live in a world that would tell you you can choose what is right for you and I can choose what is right for me. But if that is not true on any other standpoint of life, why would we accept it when it comes to the thing that may very well damn our soul? I think that when it comes to spiritual matters, it's just that important. And I could use a thousand examples, but let's just pick two. Let's say you walked in the grocery store and there was something there and it just said ground meat and you picked up the ground meat, and you went to the butcher, or you went to the grocer, and you said, what kind of meat is in this? And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, no, wait a minute, it it does matter. I want to know what kind of meat is in here. He said, well, you can believe whatever kind of meat you want it to to be, and whatever you believe it to be, that's what it's going to be. And you would look at him and say, no, an animal was killed and ground up. This can't be what I believe it to be. It either is something or it isn't something. Or you went to the doctor or the pharmacist and you got a prescription drug and you asked, you said, now what does in this drug or what does this drug treat? And they said, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Whatever you think it'll treat, that's what it'll treat. So just take it and see how it makes you feel. And how you want to feel, that's how that pill will make you feel. Now, every one of you seem to think that those are ridiculous examples then why is it that we allow students to grow up and go to college and embrace the idea that they can believe anything that they want to believe regarding their eternal destiny about truth, about Scripture, and about the Gospel? The Bible says that truth is very specific and that there are things that are true and there are things that are false. So truth then is precious. But we live in an age of lies, and the reason that we live in an age of lies, this is, shouldn't be surprising. In fact, Jesus told us that we would live in an age of lies because Satan is what? John 8:44. 44. He is the father of lies. So if Satan wanted to lie about something or have us believe lies about something, the very first way that you would do that is by trying to undercut the truth. What would be the greatest strategy to undercut the truth? The greatest strategy would be to say that there are multiple truths, that all roads lead to heaven, that you can believe whatever you want to believe, and I can believe whatever I want to believe, and we can hold hands and sing kumbaya, and none of it will matter from the pit of hell. And the Bible progresses in how it explains that from us. Because he is the father of lies, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. Now, what should that tell you? It should tell you if someone does not, A, believe in absolute truth, denies the authority of Scripture, denies the existence of God, denies the person of Jesus Christ, denies His work on the cross, denies the resurrection, denies forgiveness of sin by the shedding of blood, denies those things, then it isn't that they are simply ignorant. It is that they have been blinded by Satan himself from believing the truth so that the Bible says, 1 Timothy 4, 4, the reason that they have blind, been blinded to the truth so that they would turn their ears away from the truth. There are people, and we see it all over the world, who are choosing not only not to believe the truth, but will refuse to even listen to the truth. And the reason is, and here, here's where it gets fundamental. Hey, guys, if y'all have had a long weekend, tune in. You've got to get this. You need to understand why people are trying to run deceptions on you. You need to understand why someone's going to challenge your faith one day. You need to understand why it would be that someone would call you not to believe in God or the person and work of Christ. They, they need to know that, right? Why? Why? You need to know that. Why? Is it because people are so intellectual? Because that's what the academic and scholarly world would have us to believe, that they are too intellectual to believe these things. That's absolutely 100% false, and here's the reason we know. They can be presented with all the evidence in the world. They can be presented with scientific evidence historical evidence archaeological evidence they can be presented with every fact that you would want to present them with and they will still deny god they will deny god as creator which is the very reason that evolution has found its way into school they will deny god as savior they will deny salvation so why is it that not only will they deny him but they vehemently would tell you that you cannot believe those things here is why Because if I believe in God, I must also believe something else that flows out of that. What is that? If I believe in God, the very first thing that I have to believe is that I believe there is a God, and secondly, I'm not him. Right? So if I believe there's a God and I believe that I'm not him... What does that in turn mean? It means for me to believe in God, I have to believe I'm accountable to someone else. Are you following me? If I'm accountable to someone else, it means that I'm not my own judge. And if I'm accountable to someone else and I'm not my own judge and I've got to stand before him and he's more powerful than me, then he has the right to demand certain things of my life. But if I deny his existence, if I deny the gospel, if I deny his lordship, then that allows me to continue continue to be on the throne or think I am to be on the throne of my own life, I would tell you it's not academic the reason that people deny the existence of God and the personhood of Jesus Christ. It's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And because people would continue rather to live in their sin and worship the idolatry of their self, that is why that people deny the truth. I hope you just listen to that. I hope you heard, because it's coming at us every way we turn. And so what happens is, Romans 1.25, people exchange the truth of God for a lie. For a lie. And that's what happens. So what our job is, as the church and as believers, is to exercise the stewardship of the truth and to proclaim the right message, the gospel and the truth of it. Verse 2, verse 2, because of the truth, we see that word again, which lives in us and will be with us forever. He's telling them that he loves them and not only does he love them, but everyone else who loves the gospel loves them as well because there is a bond in truth. How are we bound together? Now most people will say immediately that we are first bound together by love. The two key aspects if you only had to pick two things that are the markers of the tr- of the church are what? Truth and love. Now, does it matter what order they're put in? Could we say love and truth? Or does it? do we need to say truth and love? I would submit to you with all of my heart that truth always, always, always goes before love. And here is why. Because if I don't have the truth, I don't know how to love. I don't know what love is. I don't know who I'm loving. So we've gotten into a day and age where we simply, and every one of you have heard this. If you're in elementary school today, you've heard someone say this. You'll hear people say, well, can't we all just get along, right? I'm okay. You're okay. Let's all just love each other. And that is one of the dumbest things you are ever going to hear. Now, when I say that, I want you to hear me loud and clear. It's not that we don't act with kindness to anyone. That's not what I'm saying. But the bond that holds people together is the truth of the gospel. And outside of that, the church has no understanding of what that binding influence is. So love is always founded on truth. So you cannot increase love by diminishing truth. In fact, the way to love more is to understand better the truth. And so we have got to get out of this mindset, got to get out of this mindset. I believe this is of Satan, of everyone believing that faith and love are emotions, that they are connected sometimes to some form of spontaneity and the only way that we love is because we feel like loving or we have faith because we have been given some impulse to believe that's satanic and here's why we fostered this message because we have sort of a sick romantic view of love too don't we Most people in the world we live in, outside of the gospel, have no understanding of what real love is. Every one of us have encountered someone throughout our life. Students, you have encountered somebody in your life already who probably has done what I'm about to describe. You've had this conversation, and you've tried to be loving, and you've tried to be supportive, and you've listened to it, but sometimes come in close People say dumb things. Amen? And here's one of the things people will say. I've heard hundreds of times It'll say something, they'll say something like this. Brother Larry, hmm. I knew in my heart he wasn't right for me. I knew he didn't love God. I knew he didn't care about church. I knew he didn't have the word in his heart. I knew his family didn't care about the things of God. I, I, I knew that he had terrible study habits. I knew that he was wild. I knew that the way he behaved himself was not anything I needed to be around. But I just couldn't help it. I love him. You're a walking, talking idiot. You, and here's why. You chose to love that fool. You you understand? Are y'all following me here? You had to make a lot of choices before you got there. I'm not saying that you don't love them. I'm saying that love has to be a choice. We know it does from a romantic standpoint obviously when we think about the biblical view of love when we think about the reason that we love people what john completely understands is that i'm not waiting on a feeling i'm not waiting to decide to love them when i feel like doing it now that may run counter to everything we hear today but let me prove to you why it can't be a feeling because if all we ever did was things we felt like doing We'd hardly ever do anything. You wouldn't have gotten out of bed this morning. Your kids wouldn't have brushed their teeth. Right? We certainly, the diets that we have would be completely blown out of proportion. Some of you would never even go to work. If all you ever did was what you felt like doing, So when we know the truth, the truth informs us that when we love, we love because he first loved us and we're not waiting to feel like that's what we're supposed to do. We're doing that because we know that's what we're supposed to do. So we make informed decisions based on truth, not on emotion and feeling. That's what John is driving at here. He wants them to understand, verse 3, that truth and love go hand in hand. You see that again. There's the phrase put together at the end of verse 3, truth and love. Truth makes love discriminating by not allowing our acceptance to undermine our loyalty to truth. Our love is soft if it's not strengthened by truth, and our truth is hard if it's not softened by love. So when you give up one, you give up the other. Because truly, you cannot have one without the other. They are a necessity. And then John says this phrase, It has given me great joy to find that some of your children are walking in the truth. Now, maybe the pessimist came out in me when I first read that verse. Because I focused in on that little four-letter word, some. Did some of you see that? Some of your children are walking in the truth. Well, if it was written to a lady, an actual lady, that would kind of be a dig, wouldn't it? Hey, I heard, some of your, I heard some of your kids are walking in the truth. What am I also implying? Heard some of them weren't. But that's not the way we should take this verse. That's not what John is saying. It could be that there were some members of the congregation that weren't walking in truth, but what he's saying is, I've heard specifically about some of them, and I know that they are. So he's he's given this encouragement, or he's giving this good report, telling this joy that's come on him. So when he talks about that, he's saying that they're walking in truth, and that means that not only have they believed the truth, but they have obeyed the truth. Now, Now I want to get very very specific on what a what walking in truth and walking in obedience and walking in love what those really should look like there are a lot of people that will tell you that they believe in God that they believe in Jesus that they believe in the resurrection that they believe they've asked Jesus into their heart as Savior, that they believe that they've repented of their sin. But what John is writing here is if those things have happened, that your profession should affect your behavior, that everything about your life shows what you believe. We live out what we believe, don't we? The way we live is what we believe. That's true in every venue of life. We act on what we believe. So, whether or not we love the truth or not, that comes out very clearly in the way our faith walk plays out. We live what we believe. Verse 5. When he says in verse 5, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. What is that command? Love one another. We've made it clear. That faith and love are not emotions or intuitions, but they're decisions. We've made it clear that people do not love God because they don't want to obey God. We've made it clear that Christian love is not just in action, is not an involuntary passion, but it's a deliberate choice. And now we come, and John makes the point, that this is the very command you've heard from the beginning. From the beginning of what? It's from the very beginning of the Christian church, that was the command. Do you remember what Jesus said? They tried to pin Jesus to the wall. They, tried to, they asked him the question, they said, well, which is the greatest commandment? It didn't matter which one he picked, they were going to nail him because he didn't name one of the other commandments. You remember this in Matthew 22? And so they asked him, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus looks at them, and of all the answers Jesus gives to the Pharisees in the New Testament, this is my favorite. He looks at them and he says this. He said, well, the first commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if they wanted to bust him, why didn't they bust him with that answer? Why? Because he just took the Ten Commandments and summarized the first four commandments with the first statement, love God. And then he summarized the second six with the next statement, love people. See, sometimes people want to complicate our faith when it's really simple. We need to love God and we need to love people jesus made it really clear again when he was speaking to the disciples john 14 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments right so we love because he first loved us but i want you to it is not accidental that john writes i am not writing to you something new this was the apostle the one whom Jesus loved, the last remaining of those alive, the one who would be exiled to Patmos, the one who wrote, right, the gospel of John, the three letters to John, and Revelation, and he said, what I'm writing is not something new. Can I give you a short word of warning, and I want you to listen well. When you hear people stand before you and say things like this, I've got a fresh word for you today. Get out of there. I've got something new that you've never heard before. Nope. And here's why. I don't want a fresh word. I want the old word. I want a true gospel. I don't need any new revelation because there is no new revelation. And some people in the church today will say, but we need something fresh. The reason that that's such an ignorant statement is it ignores the fact that for all of your life, if you were were given the, the privilege to live into your 90s like the Apostle John, and you were to study this book every morning and every night, you would never plumb the depths of the love of God. You would never fully understand the grace of God. You would never get to a point of faith where you didn't need to grow anymore because it is all we need in Christ Jesus. It equips us for everything. So I would tell you, friends, don't worry about a fresh word worry about the gospel. Don't worry about a new vision. Go to the vision that God's already given us and what you will find in that, it is not only enough, but it is more than enough to sustain everything that God calls us to, to be godly in Christ Jesus. Verse six, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. The word command or commands four different times. We walk in obedience to His commands. Now, I want you to he- hear well, and I believe this is probably something that most Christians are confused about. So he- hear me out on this, and you know we're, we're almost done, but I want, you to, I want you to hang on for a moment because I think this is huge. How are we saved? By grace, through faith, it's not of ourselves. So are we saved by keeping the commands no you couldn't be The the Ten Commandments weren't given to show you that you could somehow reach a level of holiness. The Ten Commandments were given to break your heart to show you you couldn't do it. That there's no one righteous, no not one. For all of us have sinned, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That's the point of the commandments. So when we get saved, it's not by keeping the commands. But once we are saved, the power unto salvation is now we are actually free to keep the commands of God. You see, I couldn't love God before I got saved. Did you know that? The Bible says I hated God. The Bible said I was separated from God, but now I have the power to be able to keep that command by the Holy Spirit because of the new life I have in Christ. The power I have to love people, I couldn't love people before I was saved. It doesn't mean I couldn't admire them or I couldn't care for them, but true biblical Christian love, it was impossible before I was radically saved by the blood of Christ. So what the Spirit now does in and through your life, if you're saved, is it gives you the power not only to love God, do you remember we sang that this morning that we love you, Lord, but it also gives us the power to be able to flesh out and live out our love for other people. See, too many people have understood the gospel as freedom to break the law. The gospel is not your freedom to break the law. The gospel is your freedom to obey it. That's what the power of the gospel does in the life of a believer. So we're back to our original question. How's your walk? The way that we walk says everything about our life. We know that we can never sacrifice truth for love or love for truth. We know that we've got to walk in truth. We know that we've got to walk in obedience. And we know that we've got to walk in love. So let me ask you one more time. How's your wall? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.